All right, so here we are. Another new year. My gosh, it just... Are they just coming faster and faster all the time, or is it just me? It just seems like... I heard someone say, yeah, when you're two years old, a year represents half your life. When you're 62, not so much. And so they just seem to be going faster and faster and faster. Um, But, wow, here we are, another New Year's Eve. This year that's coming up that we're looking forward to anticipating is going to be quite a year. I mean, it seems like every year is quite a year, but this one with the election coming up that's promising to be quite a circus, um, it's uh, yeah, just kind of raising everybody's awareness and maybe blood pressure a bit. And as we look around at the world, I know I'm hearing this from so many people, um, just feel like the wheels are coming off our world in, in uh, so many ways. As we look around and we see what's going on, there's more and more consternation more and more fear about where things are going. And uh, that's kind of been something that's been with us for several years, but it just keeps sort of ramping up as we see where things are going. And maybe it's always been this way. Um, Maybe more so these days, I don't know. Or maybe it's just that the media calls our attention to it and beams it into all of our devices all day long. But at any rate, this just seems to be a level of absurdity everywhere we look. And uh, down is up and wrong is right, and the extremes seem to be running the show. And so as all of this is playing out, as I said, I'm hearing a lot of fear People asking me more and more questions, you know, all the questions, of course, about end times and all that can continue to pop up. But people are worried. People are worried for themselves. They're worried for uh, the future. And they're worried especially for their children. You know, we just had so many kids in here today. They're all gone now, I see. But, you know, what kind of world are they inheriting from us? How are they going to be able to do the things that we were able to do? How can a child even afford to rent an apartment anymore? I mean, we used to be able to do that or do it with one other roommate. We used to be able to get jobs pretty easily. I mean, so many things have changed. And so here is this fear for our future generations. How will they live? Will they have the same opportunity that we had? When I think about all of this stuff and I think about the fear and the sense of scarcity, the sense of of deprivation that seems to be coming our way, I remember what Jesus said and taking a look at John 10.10. He said that I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So for Jesus, it's all about not just living, not just surviving, not just squeaking out an existence. It's about living abundantly living kind of over the top. But how do you do that when the world seems to be on the brink of something? How should we understand abundant, maybe, is another question that we can ask when we read a scripture like that. And remembering that Jesus was speaking and teaching mostly to the poor, to the marginalized of his society, he's not probably talking, at least primarily, about material abundance. But something else is going on here. Some of you know about Viktor Frankl. I talk about him from time to time. He's one of my heroes. Uh, But he's one of the uh, 20th century fathers of uh, modern psychology. And he was an Austrian Jew. He got caught up in the Holocaust, and he was the only one of his family to survive that ordeal. But he has a wonderful quote. He said that the last of the human freedoms is the ability to choose your attitude 
in any given set of circumstances. The last of human freedoms is the ability to choose your attitude in any given set of circumstances. And coming from somebody who survived the Holocaust at Auschwitz and Treblinka, that's saying something, isn't it? So I have a question for you. If we're waiting for life to become what it is supposed to be, when do we actually begin to live abundantly? Because if we're waiting for life to become what we expect it to be, what we think it's supposed to be in our own minds, man, we're waiting for a train that's not coming, right? Life doesn't expend itself <laughs> on our timetable or according to our agenda. So, I, you've heard me talk about this so many times. The abundant life for me equals two human abilities. If we can do these two things, we will experience life abundantly. If we can do these two things, we will have a quote-unquote successful life, a life with meaning and purpose, a life that has a sense of fulfillment. And that is simply this. First, to be able to accept life on life's terms exactly as it presents, the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever is coming to us, can we accept it? Or do we have to moderate it in some way? Can we just accept what's coming to us? And secondly, having given that acceptance, can we maintain a sense of hope and gratitude in our lives? If we can do those two things, accept life on life's terms as it presents, and continue to live with a sense of hope and gratitude, we are going to experience life abundantly. Now, what stands in the way of being able to do that? Because that's a tall order. How many of us are really doing that? How many of us really can accept life on life's terms and keep our attitude intact, as Victor, Victor Frankl would say? What stands in the way? Well, our belief system stands in the way. Maybe even core beliefs, those unconscious beliefs that we have gathered since childhood, that the world and our lives and life in general should be one way or another. We believe that life should be X, we believe it should be why, but we believe that it should be something. Whether it's left or right, or whether it's blue or red, whether it's spiritual or secular, what we really expect of life is for it to be resolved. We want it to be one thing. But think about this. When is life resolved? When you're dead. That's when life is resolved. Till then, how do we approach life abundantly? How can we accept life as it is, as it presents? Well, Marion has always kind of, uh, <laughs> oh, teased me about the fact that I'm always quoting song lyrics and movie lines. And for me, everything is a song. So whenever something comes into my mind, usually a song lyric comes with it, and I'm thinking about that. And so everything is a song for me. I've got three songs that I want to go through with you today, just, just snippets of it, because these three songs, I believe, give us clues, give us lessons, give us a way to approach attitudes to consider if we're really going to think about trying to live this next new year with some abundance, with some change. And the first song comes from the movie Victor Victoria. Anybody seen Victor Victoria? Comes all the way from 1982. Blake Edwards. Uh, Julie Andrews and, and, and Robert Preston. 
And what it is, it's a story of a down-and-out singer, female singer in 1930s Paris. And she can't get a job to save her life, and she's literally starving. And as she goes into a restaurant to steal a meal by putting a cockroach in her food, she meets a down-and-out male gay singer and showman, and they connect. And when he hears her sing, she has this amazing voice. Even though she's failing audition after audition, she has this amazing voice. She can actually break glass with certain tones that she can hit. And he has this apostrophe. Okay, it's an epiphany, but I just wanted to see if you were listening to me. (laughs) He has an epiphany. She can't make it as a female singer in Paris, but if she were a gay male female impersonator, (laughs) she would have the toast of Paris. She would be able to do anything she wants to do. And so they hatch this plan where she becomes a woman pretending to be a man pretending to be a woman. And of course she becomes all that and the toast of Paris and, and all the stuff is going on. But in the, in the midst of all that, since it is a comedy, in a very lighthearted way, this film really starts exploring the contradiction, the confrontation, the differences and the similarities between men and women, between gay and straight, and all of the complexities that go on and all the fears and everything that happens, especially when you think this was the 1980s, but still just as valid today. This is a very complex world. And all the craziness that you can imagine that goes on in this movie kind of comes to a single point toward the end of the movie. It's a point where all the threads start to get pulled together. And there is this moment, and of course it's a song, where it just gets very quiet. And all those themes for a moment are resolved just in the moment, in the moment itself. And if our tech works, I'd like to play this song for you from the movie, and then we'll talk a little bit more about it. But go ahead, Alex. Crazy world full of crazy contradictions like a child. First you drive me wild and then you win my heart with your wicked art. One minute tender, gentle, then temperamental as a
There's so much to talk about in what you just saw. I don't know if you noticed, but she does not move her body at all except her head for that entire scene, that entire song. I don't know if you noticed that. Even her hand position, her right hand that's resting on the piano with just the index finger extended, does not move the entire time. She is just rock solid. Just her head moves. But the camera revolves around her like the earth around the sun. And as it moves around her, you kind of wonder, how did they do that? Did they build the track? Because there's a grand piano she's standing against, and that had to go around that as well. But as that camera is moving, you're seeing all the faces and everything that's behind her, kind of like the fixed stars behind the sun as we revolve around the sun. And you're watching all these faces. There's the people in the wings, and they're all absolutely still, one with his arms folded. And the next face is her friend, Toddy, that, that is her best friend throughout the entire movie. And he has this transfixed expression where he's just wholly focused on her. And then as the camera pans out to the audience, and you see them, and they're all stock still, just watching, all singularly a part of this one moment this coalescing of all these themes into a song that does not resolve, just takes you into this other space, leaves everything resolved. And of course, the lyric was written by the great Leslie Bercuse and the music by Henry Mancini, one of the greatest film scorers that we have. And so it's just a gorgeous song. It's a grown-up song. It doesn't have the usual form that we normally have, A, B, A, B, C, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge. It's literally a poem that was set to music. So complex, so rich in terms of the imagery. And I thought maybe it would be good for us to, to read the lyric right now. It's in your inserts if you want to follow along. Just so we can make sure we see where this song is going. Crazy world full of crazy contradictions, like a child. First you drive me wild, and then you win my heart with your wicked art. One minute ten tender, gentle, then temperamental as a summer storm. Just when I believe your heart's getting warmer, you're cold and you're cruel. And like a fool, I try to cope, try to hang on to hope. Crazy world. Every day the same old roller coaster ride, but I've got my pride. I won't give in, even though I know I'll never win. Oh, how I love this crazy world. Beautiful. There's so much in here, you know, as a songwriter, when you look at this, there's, there's all these complex interior rhymes and everything going on, but it doesn't follow any meter. And the genius of Mancini to bring that into music, and then, of course, Julie Andrews to be able to perform it. But look at what it's saying. It's basically showing us that life doesn't resolve. It's a crazy world that we're part of right now crazy world. Life is a tension. It's tension and release. It's a contradiction. How are we supposed to live in that kind of situation? How would we rather have it? Well, we'd rather have it resolved, of course. But even look at what Jesus says at Matthew 10, 34. He says, 
You know, do not think that I came to bring you peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. We think of Jesus as the Prince of Peace, and he is. But that's the Prince of Shalom. And Shalom is abundance, if you want to think of it that way. Shalom is the greatest amount of everything good that you can have. Peace and harmony and wealth and, and, and so on and so forth. That's why it was used as a greeting. Shalom, like aloha. But the word that Jesus uses here when he says, I did not come to bring you peace, is shanay. Shanay means calm or tranquility. It means resolution. It means coming to rest. Jesus didn't come to bring us that. His message can't bring that. In fact, his message is going to bring the sword, is going to bring the division. As soon as we set out on Jesus' way, it's going to start in our own home. It's going to start with the people who know us best, where those divisions are going to begin, because we will be upsetting other people's view of the way the world should be, and the way the family should be, and the way that we should be. And they're going to resist that. So no resolution here. There couldn't be. Because if Jesus' message is a way of living life, life remains unresolved. It's crazy contradictions. And how we deal with those crazy contradictions, not trying to resolve them, but how do we live in the midst of them, is really the question. This tension, this paradox, Jesus is saying, is inevitable. And it's also necessary. It keeps us guessing. It keeps us interested. It keeps us alive. Think about the movies that you love. Or stories, books, novels. Think of sports. Think of games. Isn't it the tension? Isn't it the risk? Isn't it the unknowing that keeps you interested in the game, keeps you interested in the movie, the constant unveiling of more and more conflict and plot twists? What keeps us interested? What's a spoiler alert? Someone who tells you how it resolves at the end of the movie. And then there's no point in watching the movie anymore, right? Think about it. If life really did present its answer, quote unquote, its resolution, if somehow, some way, you got the answer to life, it would be spoiled. It would be over. There would be no reason to continue. It is the tension itself, the unresolution the paradox that keeps us in it. I like to call this a sacred tension. This is something that Jesus is trying to engender in us. Don't expect it to be otherwise. It's going to be this way. It needs to be this way. It's the only way we really learn the unseen things. It's the only way we learn these existential truths is by living through the paradox, not by trying to flop down to one side or another and mentally resolve the issue choosing one over the other. This sacred tension, this living in between, if you will, is the true path of spirituality. But in our fear, right, in our need for certainty, we flop down to one side or another. We make a choice. And then the lesson ends. And then our path along the way ends. It stops. It's arrested at that point. Because only fearless freedom is able to celebrate the tension and the unknown and see it for what it is. Our whole Western world is based on Greek logic. And that works really well with physical systems, and that's why it's our, our basis of our, of our culture. 
Greek logic is based on non-contradiction. There can only be one thing true at a time, and everything else needs to be false. You have a premise, and you work linearly to a conclusion, and you harmonize, and you resolve whatever issue it is you're dealing with. That's our Western way. Suits us fine, because we want things neat. We want them resolved. We want one thing to be true at a time. But did you know that our scripture is based on something completely different? The Hebrews have what is some scholars have called block logic. Block logic is where you have certain blocks that within themselves are cohesive, but they'll be laid right next to another block that is complete contradiction in tension with the other block, and they're just laid side by side with no attempt to resolve them because Jews aren't worried about that resolution. For instance, in Exodus, when uh, Pharaoh won't let the people go, One verse says Pharaoh hardened his heart against Moses' request. The very next verse says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, which is it? They both can't be true. The scripture makes no attempt to resolve that. Just lays them down side by side as if that's absolutely fine. Makes our Western minds go crazy. Start to get a tick in your eye. But for the Jews, it is absolutely fine because everything they know in life is like two sides of the same coin. You look at it one way and it looks like this. You look at it another way, it looks like that. We're finding the same thing at the quantum level in science, right? Sometimes it looks like a wave. Sometimes it looks like a particle. It depends on the way you look. It depends on the experiment you put it through. It's both. It's neither. But it's not one or the other. You can't make a choice and say light is a wave because over here it's a particle. And it's the same thing with all of life. The Jews understood this. Their logic, their culture was built on this understanding. I wanted to read just a few paragraphs from a book called Our Father Abraham, which was a a real seminal book for me to read when I was trying to understand the mindset from which Jesus comes. The author writes, The Hebrew knew he did not know all the answers. His position was under the sun, so his words were few. He refused to over-systematize or force harmonization of the enigmas of God's truth or the puzzles of the universe. He realized that no one could straighten what God has made crooked. All things, therefore, did not need to be fully rational. The Hebrew mind was willing to accept the truths taught on both sides of the paradox. It recognized that mystery and apparent contradictions are often signs of the divine. You like that? You hear that? Mystery and apparent contradictions are often signs of the divine among us. Stated succinctly, the Hebrew knew that the wisdom of learning to trust in matters that they could not fully understand, that was their wisdom. Neither God nor his word may be easily contained in a box for logical or scientific analysis. Both God and his word have a sovereign unpredictability that defies rational human explanation. Jewish biblical scholar Pinchas Lapide writes this provocative word for Christians to ponder. Jesus was certainly no theologian in any Western sense of the word because he was a Jew. Like the prophets before him, he gave concrete biblical answers to the pressing questions of daily life. Poverty, payment of taxes, feuding between relatives or colleagues and daily subsistence, he would certainly have detested as arrogant blasphemy any attempt to unravel and neatly systematize the mysteries of God. 
In a similar context, Lapide reinforces the above point by commenting on Gentile Christians who try to squeeze Jesus and his paradoxes into a logical straitjacket. Says Lapide, he, Jesus, is still protesting. I am no cleverly thought out book. I am a human being with all the inherent contradictions. Lapide's point is well taken. It drives the Christian back to the Gospels to consider anew such sayings as Matthew 10.34, in which the Prince of Peace says, Do not suppose I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. The Semites of Bible times did not simply think truth. They experienced truth. As we have previously emphasized, truth is as much encounter as it is propositions. This experiential perspective on reality explains, in part, why Judaism never really developed vast systems of thought. It also allows us to understand how Judaism could live with the tensions and paradoxes surrounding block logic. To the Jew, the deed was always more important than the creed. He was not stymied by language that appeared contradictory from a human point of view. Neither did he feel compelled to reconcile what seemed irreconcilable. He believed that God ultimately was greater than any human attempt at systematizing truth. Walking in the truth and living the truth were a higher priority than rationally analyzing the truth. In the words of the renowned biblical scholar Rabbi Joseph Solovitchik, we Jews are practical. We are more interested in discovering what God wants man to do than we are in describing God's essence. As a teacher, I never try to solve questions because most questions are unsolvable. He concludes, Judaism is never afraid of contradictions. It acknowledges that full reconciliation of the two is possible only in God. He is the coincidence of opposites. Got to love that phrase. Put that one on your fridge, would you? God is the coincidence of opposites. He is the crazy contradictions in our lives, right? That's what this is all about seeing these contradictions, seeing that they can't be resolved except in God, except spiritually by simply living through them and experiencing them. But we here in the West are taught the Greek way. And for us here in the West and for modern people in general, contradictions are unbearable. Someone has said all the neuroses that we, uh, that we experience as human beings, as a people, come from the intolerance of uncertainty. We can't tolerate it. We can't handle these contradictions. We've got to harmonize them. We must resolve them. We need to find the one true answer. That's our Greek way. And when you translate in that into theology, really, when it comes right down to it, we're not saved, quote, unquote, by God until we understand God correctly. And we need to understand God with the only one and accurate theological truth. That's the thing that has the power to save. Nothing else does. And if we don't understand that, if we don't agree to it, we're not saved. And life itself is not abundant until 
it's harmonized, until it's resolved. And that's only in death. Because most of us are deferring that abundant life to the next life, to heaven. We don't see that it's possible here. This is just the veil of tears that we need to get through so that we can get to our reward. But Jesus doesn't explain anything. If these answers were so important, if the only way that we could get saved was to have the one true essence of God in our minds, rationally presented, wouldn't Jesus have given that to us over and over and over? And yet when he's asked a question, he doesn't answer it. In fact, he's always shunting the person off in different directions with another question or a story or whatever it happens to be. He doesn't explain. He doesn't give answers. He just says, follow me. Follow the way. Experience something that will convince you of a truth that you'll never be able to explain to anybody else any more than I can. Experience this with me. It's just like that great story of Mother Teresa that I've told in here several times. You know, someone comes to Mother Teresa, a, a very famous actual Jesuit professor who's hidden his own brick wall, and he comes to her and he asks her to pray for her to pray for him for clarity because that's what he craves. He craves the clarity. He craves the certainty. He craves the answer. And she says, no, I'm not going to do that for you. And he's shocked. Why not? Because clarity is the last thing that you are clinging to and need to let go of. But you have so much clarity, he says. And she laughs. She goes, no, I don't have clarity. What I have is trust. So looking at Mother Teresa from the outside, this little four-foot nothing who managed to turn the world sideways, right, with, with just the sheer force of her personality and her life's work, looked like she was as sure-footed as one of those goats on the side of a mountain, always knew exactly where to place her foot. From her perspective, she had no more idea than you or I or anybody else. But she trusted that with each footfall, there would be something there to support her, maybe in ways she didn't expect, but she was willing just to move out. As Lao Tzu said, the path is made by walking on it. You don't imagine it. It doesn't appear fully formed in advance. It is made with each footfall. And so the lesson from this first song, Crazy World, is to come to accept, to come to love, not just accept, but actually love the contradictions and the tensions in life. That is a huge deal. And it's a tall order for most of us. But can we come to accept and love the contradictions instead of trying to constantly resolve them? The second song comes from Johnny Clegg, and he's such an interesting character. You may probably have never heard of him, but he's a musician and a songwriter, also an anthropologist and an anti-apartheid activist. But uh, he came to... Uh, came to age in the 70s as a white man in South Africa during the time that apartheid was, uh, was the rule of the land there. But he's a contradiction himself because he was born of a Scottish-English father and a Rhodesian-Jewish immigrant mother. Think about that, right? 
So he's got, he was raised Jewish by his mother because his parents split up when he was very young. And so he was raised Jewish, but he didn't want to take part in that. And yet, as he got thrown into Zulu culture in South Africa, he became fluent in Zulu. He also, as a musician, became fluent in their music and their musical forms and their musical traditional instruments and, and the culture itself. He's been called the white Zulu often. And his music reflects that. It's always a mix of the two cultures. His bands always consisted of black Zulu performers as well as himself and other white performers. And his lyrics were a mix of English and Zulu. And so the song that I want to take a look at were words that he was trying to give to his young son Jesse at the time, who was growing up into the world that he would inherit. And if you take a look at your inserts again, his song, Cruel, Crazy, Beautiful World. What are we talking about here? Contradictions right in the title. Cruel, crazy, beautiful world. You have to wash with the crocodile in the river. Swim with the sharks in the sea. You have to live with the crooked politician. Trust those things you can never see. Beyond the door, strange, cruel, beautiful years lie waiting for you. It kills me to know that you won't escape loneliness. Maybe you lose hope, too. Ayeye, ayeye, Jesse Mfana, ayeye, ayeye. When I feel your small body close to mine, I feel weak and strong at the same time. So few years to give you wings to fly, show you the stars to guide your ship by. It's a cruel, crazy, beautiful world. Every time you wake up, I hope it's under a blue sky. It's a cruel, crazy, beautiful world. One day when you wake up, I will have to say goodbye. Goodbye. It's your world, so live in it. It's your world, so live in it. I love that lyric. It's your world, so live in it. Ayeye, that is a Zulu word. It literally means joy. It means celebration. It means sheer happiness. It's the analog of shalom, abundance, the greatest amount of everything good in life. He's saying, Ayeye, Jesse, my son, you know, live with that joy, with that sense of abundance. It's your world. Live in it this way. It's your world, so live in it. Love it as it is, not as you think it should be. Because life is always as it is. It's uncontrollable in any given moment. Abundant life is always lived as life is and only as life is. Anything else, any attempt at control, any attempt to try to mold life into our expectation is going to be perceived and experienced as scarcity, not abundance. Jesus' central point that he's always making is that kingdom, which is the experience of abundance here, right now, kingdom is only lived as a child lives. And a child, think about it, does not force contradictions and tensions into harmony in order to feel safe. The child finds harmony in the contradiction. The child becomes the paradox, embraces the paradox, not consciously. They're just doing what they do as being the product of just being able to embrace a single moment. That's what the child does instinctively. Jesus is saying we need to get back to that if we are going to experience the abundance of kingdom. And so the second song lesson 
is to live life as it presents right now. Because when we're not obsessively seeking resolution, then we can learn to love this crazy world just as it is. And the third song, perfect for New Year's, Auld Lang Syne. It speaks of balance. This focus that I've been harping on for the last uh, half hour or so, on accepting the here-now moment as it is, still has to be balanced. It has to be balanced with moments past that we remember. It has to be balanced with plans for the future. Of course, we as human beings need to plan for the future and learn from the past. And so there needs to be a balance between the now and the not yet. We need to be able to learn from the past, celebrate the past, but also work to change the future. But all the while living in the presence and never letting our ability to think about past and future obliterate the moment itself and our ability to immerse in it. Take a look at the lyrics of Auld Lang Syne. Normally we only get the first stanza, but I added a couple more from Robert Burns so we can get the full idea of what it is that this song is conveying. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and old Lang Syne? For old Lang Syne, my dear, for old Lang Syne, we'll take a cup of kindness yet for old Lang Syne. We too have run about the slopes and picked the daisies fine, but we've wandered many a weary foot since old Lang Syne. We too have paddled in the stream from morning sun till dine, but seas between us broad have roared since Auld Lang Syne. And there's a hand, my trusty friend, and give us a hand of thine, who'll take a right goodwill draft for Auld Lang Syne. Robert Burns. I wanted to read so that we can know a little bit more about what this song is saying. There's this great article by Peggy Noonan one of our greatest writers. She says, you'll know exactly when you'll hear it, and you probably won't hear it again for a year. The big clock will hit 11.59.50, and the countdown will begin. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. And the sounds will rise, the party horns, fireworks, and shouts of Happy New Year, and then they'll play that song. <laughs> Should all the acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind. Should all the acquaintance be forgot in days of all plain sign. It's a poem in Scott dialect set to a Scott folk tune. And an unscientific survey says that a lot of us don't think much about the words or even know them. Auld Lang Syne. The phrase can be translated as old long since or long, long ago. But I like old times past. That's really good. Everything that we've been through together is contained in Auld Lang Syne. And it's a song that asks a question, a tender little question that has to do with the nature of being alive, of being a person on a journey in the world. It not only asks, it gives an answer. It was written or written down by Robert Burns, lyric poet and bard of Scotland. In 1788, he sent a copy of the poem to the Scots Musical Museum with the words, the following song, an old song of the olden times, has never been in print. Burns was interested in the culture of Scotland and collected old folk tales and poems. He said he got this one from an old man, no one knows who, and wrote it down. Being a writer, Burns revised and compressed. 
He found the phrase Auld Lang Syne exceedingly expressive and thought whoever first wrote the poem was heaven-inspired. The song spread throughout Scotland where it was sung to mark the end of the old year and then to the English-speaking world where it's sung to mark the new. The question it asks is clear. Should those we knew and loved be forgotten and never thought of? Should old times past be forgotten? No, says the song. They shouldn't be. We'll remember those times and those people. We'll toast them now and always. We'll keep them close. We'll take a cup of kindness yet. The phrase old acquaintance is is important, says a friend of mine. It's not only your close friends and people you love, it's people you knew even casually, and you think of them, and it brings tears to your eyes. For him, acquaintance includes your heroes, my heroes, the Winston Churchills of life, the ones you admire. They're old acquaintances, too. But the interesting, more serious message in the song is that the past is important. We mustn't forget it. The old has something for us, and so does the present, as the last stanza makes clear. The song is not only about those who were in your life, but those who are in your life. And there's a hand, my trusty friend, and give a hand of thine. We'll take a right goodwill draft for Auld Lang Syne. The song is about friendship. I think it's a description of the things we lose in our hurry to do things. We forget to be a friend. We have to take the time to make friends and be friends, to sit and tell stories and listen to those of others. And so this sacred tension we're talking about is holding all the elements of life together in this one present moment, like the moment where the camera is spinning around the singer, all holding this moment together everything that they are, all their fears, all their hopes, all their dreams coalescing in this one moment. The richness of the joys and the sorrows of the past, the hope and the anticipation of the future is the backstory to any moment that we experience in life. It's all there. It's all present. We don't want to be thinking about it, but it's all right there. To experience a moment like that with all those elements in place, it's kind of like holding repelling magnets like you tried to do as a kid, you know, and you're trying to hold them together. Or it's like trying to hold on to a litter of squirming kittens, you know, and trying to do that. And, as Get Smart would say, loving it. And loving it. Holding that together, the tension of trying to hold that together is what we're talking about here. Holding the knowing with the unknowing, the past and the present and the future, the clarity and the trust, the contradiction and the harmony, the tension and the release. The lesson of this third song is that life is lived in the balance of every when, all held as one right here and right now. And finally, Jesus says at Matthew 28, verse 20, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. Now this in the Greek is a first-person singular, present indicative construction. Why should we care? What does that mean to us? (laughs) 
It means that it's emphatic. That construction is creating emphasis. I am here. I am now. And I have always been here. Always been now. Jesus' presence, God's presence, is always now and always will be and always has been. And that's how this life is lived abundantly in a crazy, contradictory, scary world. If we can begin to love the crazy world, it's because we have begun to balance the cruel and the beautiful just as it is and realize it is all just as it should be. This life does not need to be changed in order for us to experience the abundance of our lives. In fact, it's only because the world is as it is, presenting these paradox and contradictions to us that we can experience the abundance of life as we move through them in their unresolved state by being emphatically present to each moment as it is, as it presents, accepting now as it is, even as we work now to change tomorrow. It's all still here now. It's a crazy world full of crazy contradictions, but it is our world. So let's live in it with ayeye, with shalom, with abundance, and always with the billions upon billions of old acquaintances that have lived this life before us. Because they're all there. And they're all with us in this moment of every when. And think about it. If just 51% of us could follow Jesus in this way, then the world wouldn't be as crazy as it is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a new year. Thank you that we're here breathing, that we can celebrate this, that we can cross this imaginary line into another year of our lives. And we ask as we do this that we can be more aware, conscious, that if we need to change our attitude about where we are, if our insistence on changing things in order to experience abundance is making us more and more combative, more and more embittered, more and more sidelined in life, that we can begin to make the turn to just immerse in our moments as they are, experience them with everyone who shares them with us, and find something in them that we hadn't seen because we weren't willing to. That's what we want, Lord to find you in the midst of everything by letting go of the preconceptions that take you out. Thank you for everything that you've given us, Lord. All the tools we need that are already here. Help us to take those first few steps and find you in the midst. And also realize that we can only love because you loved us first. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all stand?